The book of Daniel in the fourth chapter is where we've found we've made our way. Now both Ripley's Believe It or Not and the Guinness Book of Records has proven that truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, the weirdest, the strangest stuff that, that exists is the stuff that's true, believe, you know, believe it or not, says uh, Ripley. And so does Daniel, chapter 4. This is the strangest chapter in the Bible. And as best I, as I can understand, best, as I, best I know, it is the only chapter in the Bible written by a new convert, a brand new convert. Now, I do believe that Nebuchadnezzar became a convert, became a believer. I don't have really uh, proof to substantiate that, but I do have a, an opinion that I value very much. And, and my opinion is, is that he did become a convert. And I'm going to show you why I believe that later on. If he didn't become a convert, a believer in the true and living God, then this is the only chapter in the Bible that's written by an unbeliever. Because Nebuchadnezzar wrote chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, and it speaks in the first person. There is found in the fourth chapter of Daniel an extreme view of insanity. This man went insane in the worst form of insanity. It begins and ends with almost the same words. It begins with an adoration and, a, and a, an outburst of praise from the lips of a pagan king. And that's astounding in itself. Now, if you can imagine tonight that all of a sudden, coming on CNN is, is uh, Saddam or Saddam Hussein praising the living God, Almighty God, Jehovah. And he's just literally declaring the most profound praise you've ever heard. That's how incredible this is. This pagan king bursting out with these words of adoration and praise. Now there, it begins in the, in the first verse and runs through verse 3. Now I want you to look at this with me. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done to me. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. These words of adoration and praise from the lips of a pagan king. Now in verse 4, it is as if he's saying, well, let's go back and I want to show you the man I used to be. And you've seen in the movies a kind of a flashback. You get, you're in the present, then they flash back to the past. And so in beginning in verse 4, he flashes back to the man he used to be. And he's describing this man eight years prior to the present moment. So he goes back eight years in time, and he's describing himself before he came to the place where he could shout these words of praise to God. And so it is a flashback to his life eight years prior 
to verses 1 through 3. And I want us to begin reading at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now here's this rich and powerful king who is the king of the, great, of, of, the, of the greatest nation in the world. He's the king of the world. And he goes into his palace, I'm assuming, one afternoon, and he's just thinking to himself, Man, do I have it made. And he stretches out in his easy chair to take a little nap, and he's flourishing, he says. He's just exulting in, in, this, um, the, in, the, in the power and the luxury of his life. He's saying to himself, man, coining the phrase of another commercial, it don't get any better than this. And while he's kind of lounging on his couch, he falls asleep and he has this dream. And when he wakes up, he's terrified. And the dream gives him insomnia. He can't sleep. All he can think about are the visions and the things he saw in this dream. And he says in verse 5, I saw a dream and it made made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the vision in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon. Now, what does this sound like? It sounds like chapter 2. It's the very same thing he did in chapter 2. He called on all of the magicians and the, uh, and the men of his palace, the interpreters of dreams and, and, and the philosophers, to give him an interpretation of this dream. You know, we are creatures of habit. He is, and so are we. Uh, If you're a worrier this year, you'll probably be a worrier next year. If you're given to greed now, you'll probably be given to greed tomorrow. I mean, he's a creature of habit, and so we all are. And he hadn't learned his lesson yet, so he calls back the same people in chapter 2 who couldn't interpret his first dream. And when they couldn't interpret this dream, all of a sudden, verse 8, but finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. That's the name he gave him. It's the name of his God. It means prince of the gods. According to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Now he's not at this point saying the spirit of the living God, He doesn't know anything about the living God as yet. This is eight years prior to his conversion. But he's like one of his gods that he worships, and he he worshiped many gods, little g. And he related the dream to Belteshazzar, to Daniel, saying, O Belteshazzar, he saw him as a magician, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, Tell me the visions of my dream which I've seen along with its interpretation. Now verses 10 through 18 are the revelation of the dream. And I want you to notice a high point in this. I want you to take a pencil and in in a moment as you go down through here, I want you to notice the change from the impersonal pronoun it to the personal pronoun him. Uh, that's, a, that's key and fundamental to the understanding of this thing. Now he gives the, he gives the dream 
to Daniel. This is what he says. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its, there's that impersonal pearl, and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, the birds of the sky dwelt in the branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, this heavenly creature now is calling the shots. He descended from heaven, and he shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and let the birds from its branches flee from it. Understood. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Now notice the change here. You see in this? And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. And all of a sudden he shifts from the impersonal it to the personal him. So that the, the stump that is left is a reference to a person. Note carefully, leave the stump with its roots. Now verse 16. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let him and let seven periods of time, seven years, pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watcher, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. Here's the purpose of this dream. Here's the purpose of the tree that's cut down, branches cut down, everything is scattered, only the stump is left with its roots. The purpose, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Wow. So what is happening to Nebuchadnezzar is this. God is, is declaring to every living creature that He is the ruler over all mankind. Now I want you to take your Bible. I want you to turn to the book of Colossians. The, the Colossians is a New Testament epistle and it's over there after Galatians and Ephesians, Colossians. If you find Romans, take a right and you're in the neighborhood. And I want to begin reading at verse 15 of the book of Colossians. I hope you'll turn. Just keep your finger there in Daniel 4. 
Verse 15, and He is the image of chapter 1. He is the image, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Here it is. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. Now let me give you something I want you to, you know, I like to say something profound in every sermon, getting ready to say something profound. Everything that happens in life, everything that occurs in life, I believe, occurs for the purpose that Jesus Christ might be known as preeminent to all people. And the answer to every event in human history what you're seeing unfolding before you in this time, I'm convinced, on CNN or the news or whatever, every event in, the, in human history and every event in your life is for the purpose that God might show that Jesus is preeminent. That explains the events of human history. A number of years ago, Grosset and Dunlap, in order to promote a new book they were putting out, interviewed a hundred educators, philosophers, administrators, teachers, professors, and asked them what they believed were the top 100 most significant events in history. Number one, Columbus discovers America. Number two, Gutenberg invents the movable type. Eleven events tied for third and four events tied for fourth, or five. Wright Brothers plane flies. X-ray is discovered. Ether makes surgery painless. Jesus Christ is crucified, tied for fourth, in history's most significant events. Now, we, we kind of, you know, kind of, sh- you know, shrug our shoulders at that. But let me ask you this question. What position does he hold in your life? I mean, is he really preeminent in your life? What Daniel 4 is about is this, and we'll get to this, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but the purpose of Daniel 4 is to show that God will do anything in order to make himself preeminent in you. God will do anything in order to prove that He is sovereign and Jesus is preeminent. Somebody has to be first. You say, well, you know, He's kind of second or third, and that's no big deal. Well, it really is. Let me ask you, let me challenge you this. You husbands go home tonight. You guys have got wives. You might have a girlfriend. You might play... And you, you, you're sitting there and you're watching uh, the, you know, CNN and the war and all that. 
And you just kind of reach over and you take your wife's hand and you say, Honey, of all the women I have ever known, you are number three. <laughs> you try that. And uh, you're tied for fourth. Come and uh, see how long that lasts. You know what I'm saying? Now, Daniel's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4 is that, the whole, that, that all of the living would understand that God is sovereign over mankind. That's what this is about. Now the interpretation of the dream. Back to Daniel chapter 4. The interpretation of this dream begins in verse 19. Now notice a strange thing happens. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The word appalled there means he's stunned. He's speechless. When, when Nebuchadnezzar told him about this dream and asked him to interpret it, when that interpretation God gave him, came to his mind, it stunned him. He couldn't talk. And, and Belteshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, Belteshazzar, do not let this dream or its interpretation alarm you. I mean, just tell me what, it's, what you know. My Lord, if, and, and, and Daniel said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you. Now it's significant here that Daniel has been taken from his home in Jerusalem. It's my opinion that he's about 32 years of age at this time. He's been taken from his home in Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. In Babylonian captivity he resides under this pagan king, but he doesn't hate him. Says a whole lot about Daniel. In fact, he's thinking to himself and saying verbally, if only this was, were, 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 would happen to somebody but you. It's a terrible thing that's about to happen. My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth. Foliage was beautiful. Verse 22, it is you, O king. Take a pencil and underline the next phrase. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Leave the stump with its roots in the ground, with a band of iron bronze around it and the new grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beast of the field until seven years pass. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven years will pass over you until you, look here, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and, dispose, and bestows it on whomever He wishes. 
And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven, look at this, that it is heaven that rules. Now, I don't suppose there could be a more relevant passage than for our time than this one. I mean, you're going to be, become like a beast living in the fields, eating grass, until you realize that heaven rules the earth. Now, that took a little courage. And Daniel says, you're going to lose your mind, and this is why. You are a great man, and you have dominion and greatness. The problem is, you know that. And your pride has gotten in the way. And because you're a pride, proud man, and you have pride that doesn't recognize the God of heaven, he's going to extremes to get your attention. And what Daniel did was that he confronted Nebuchadnezzar with the truth of the Scripture. Now here's the key. There is a difference between interpreting the truth and confronting someone with the truth. Let me say that again. There is a difference between interpreting truth and confronting someone with the truth. There's often an ignoring of the application of the truth to life. And some of us are satisfied to teach accurate truth, but, you, but never confront someone with it, Conf never have confrontation. When he says, therefore, he's exhorting the king, and he says, I want you to turn from your sin, because the fact is that God's going to turn you insane. Now I want to put a little parenthesis around this and I want to apply this verse and stay on the subject of confrontation. It's not just the task of a minister or, or, a, or a priest, priestly believer to interpret truth, but to confront with truth. Now let me say something about confronting people with truth. That doesn't mean that you just walk up to somebody and tell them all the things you don't like about them, and some of us have a habit of doing that. You know, we call it constructive criticism. That's not constructive criticism. It's destructive condemnation is what it is. Confronting someone with the truth is in the right context. It means that I develop a walk with someone to the point that I have a, 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 a relationship which becomes an open door. And the people that I confront with the truth are the people that, that I have an open door, developed an open door with for that confrontation. That's what happened to Daniel in the years he lived in the palace. He developed a relationship with the king. He could confront him with truth. He didn't just all of a sudden appear on the scene and say, man, you better straighten up. You're going to come. You're going to go insane. He had an open door so that he could confront him. Now, I, I, I believe this completely, that there is a need for confrontation. There's a need for confrontation. Parents with children, 
need for confrontation. In fact, Augsburger has a book entitled Caring Enough to Confront so that I, I, I develop a relationship and it gives me the freedom and an open door to confront someone with the truth and not just interpret. Now look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, may I give it, may I advise, my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, you see this? Did you catch that? That the reason why he cared enough to confront the king with the truth was because he wanted the king to be prosperous. He was confronting him not just to confront him so he could tell him what he didn't like about him. He confronted him with the truth so that the king would prosper. He didn't want him to fail. He wanted him to succeed. Now, it's surely really hard I'm, as a parent to confront you know, kid, your, your children. And it's a lot easier to ignore rather than to confront but if you have a genuine, genuine interest in the prosperity of others, you better learn how to confront them with truth in a loving way. Now, it'd be wonderful if I could say to you that this guy just repented all of a sudden, but he didn't. Look at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great? Which, look here, I myself have built. Doesn't anything to do with God's giving him the ability to do this. It sound, does it sound to you like the, the guy that Jesus told about who had all these uh, crops and he said, Man, look at all my crops. I need more barns. I'll build more barns and grow more crops and build more I did all. He says, I built this Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power. Look at this. And for the glory of my majesty. Can you just see this king walking up there 12 months later? He's had this dream that has kept him awake. Daniel has told him what it's all about, and he's still walking around. We never like walking out on the top of the palace talking about how great he is and how great a kingdom he's established for his might and majesty. Now, just a little word of aside here. Sometimes you can confront people over and over and over again. It doesn't do a bit of good. They don't, they don't change. That, don't, that doesn't mean you don't keep on confronting. Notice what? God did. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar? Man, how do you think that felt? While the words were still in his mouth, I'm the greatest. Sound like Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. While the words were in his mouth, God said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And all hell breaks loose. And the bell has sounded for God's judgment. And notice what happens. 
and you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven years will pass until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Are you getting the point of this? That a man might exalt himself and build an empire for himself. But one day God says, Okay, you've bragged enough. The judgment is coming and I'm going to bring about everything necessary to convince you that I'm the ruler of heaven and earth. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind, beginning, began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived out in the, gra- out in the fields, in the meadows, Look here, until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails, fingernails, toenails, like bird's claws. Now, somebody might want to close this and say, oh, now look, you don't really believe all that actually happened like that, do you? Well, yeah, I do. I believe it happened like that. Um... This, this malady in which man is so insane, he regards himself as a beast and initiates their manner of life is called insania zoanthropica. And I've read recently that there are recent cases of this insanity. It's the worst form of insanity. It happens in recent times. Now hear me, you hear me well now, listen. God will stop at nothing to break us. Some of us are so proud and so arrogant and He knows that it will take that kind of breaking to break us. But God will stop at nothing to break us. And it seems to me that if God can do that to a king, in this age, this, this period of time, this biblical time, he's, he's the same. And God will, do, will stop at nothing to break us. But God is a God of grace. And I want you to look at verse 34. That's the proof of it. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven First time he'd ever done this. And you just see this man out there walking on his all fours, hair like eagle's feathers, toenails and fingernails had grown to the length of eagle's claws, and he turns his eyes toward heaven. First time. And my reason returned to me. He's back sane again. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Now He sees Him as the living God, eternal God. He talks about living God. And He begins this, what I believe, and I, and I don't know, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar, and I certainly don't know everything there is in the Bible, but I don't know any greater 
passage of praise than this. I've often turned to this in my quiet time when I've just wanted to praise the Lord and repeated these words. The greatest statement of praise I know anything about. Here's what he said. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures forever for generation to generation. You want to make that personal. You just take this and you say it back. For your, your kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? At that time, my reason was returned, oh, he's a God of grace, a God of grace. His reason was returned. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. These people had forsaken him in that seven-year period of time of his insanity. They started coming back to him, seeking him out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, in my reign, and surpassing greatness was added to me. I was greater than I was before. Verse 37, circle it, underline it, put it on your, on your, on your uh, refrigerator, on the mirror so you can look at it in the morning. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. Unbelievers don't say things like that, do they? This guy's become a believer, a convert. And honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are true, and all His ways are just. And here it is, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Every time I try to share with somebody and that person gives me that, you know, that arrogant, who needs God, I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, my friend, if you only knew what God could do to take that arrogancy away from you. He's able to make humble those who walk in pride. There are two lessons. Jot these down. We're out of here. God's judgment may be slow, but it's certain. Now for 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar, after the dream, walked in the power and the majesty and the might of this kingdom of Babylon. God did nothing. But just because God tarries doesn't mean God won't fulfill. The 8th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 11 reads, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of men among them are given to do evil. In other words, because God doesn't immediately bring about judgment, we think He never will. Don't count on that. For even though the judgment of God may be slow, it's certain. 
Second, I think you've already gotten this point. God will go to any extreme to show that He is Lord. It would be a sad thing tonight if we brought into this pulpit every testimony of, the, of people that are available just to this community and have them stand in this pulpit and give testimony of what God did to humble them. It would be a chilling testimony time. God is willing to go any, to any extreme to prove that He is Lord. I hope He doesn't have to. I hope that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. I hope you'll say, as Paul did, in this interim of 12 months, I became aware of the goodness of God to me, and therefore I repented. This story, and I'm through. One night, a true story. Some people, in fact, these people related to somebody, some people in Durant. Maybe you're watching on TV. I was pastoring out in West Texas and I went to visit a couple. And immediately upon visiting them, they had one of these bean bags and I sat down in a bean bag. Immediately upon visiting them, we had a, we just clicked. I just really, really liked them. And we, both of them were unsaved. And before I left, I, I, I shared the gospel and I asked them if they'd like to be saved. And this was the response. We just haven't had enough bad things to happen to us, I guess, for us to need to be saved. And I, I, I didn't really understand what they meant. I said, do, do what? And they said, well, most people, you know, they, they'll come to the Lord when enough bad things happen to them. I said, oh, no, don't, don't do that. I said, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, not the bad stuff. I mean, come to the Lord because of all the good things He does. And, and I went back, and I went back, and I went back. And one day I got ready, I, I, I got a call to go to Fort Worth, move to Fort Worth, and I loaded up my car, loaded up our stuff, and before I left, I went down to their house. They live right down the street. And I, I told them goodbye. We had become very, very dear friends. And I asked them again, no, no change. About six months after I'd been to Fort Worth, I was preaching revival in West Texas. And, 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 and at noon, I was doing a noon service. And, and they came in with a little note and said, please call a number. It was a number of the hospital in Hobbs, New Mexico and the name of these people. And I went in, I called the hospital, and this lady said, Gerald, could you come to the hospital? He said, we've just found out. And they called the name of her husband. He was, he's, he, he was dying. And I, so I did. A guy had a little small plane, so we went to Hobbs, New Mexico. And I went in the hospital room, and this was what they said, first thing. I guess God has finally 
gotten our attention. The long and short of that is that both the man and his wife both died. But before they died, they both came to know the Lord. Now, I'm not sure, and I'm not here to tell you that, that God, I'm, never am I prepared to say that God did that, but I am prepared to say this, that God will go to any extreme to prove that He is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we exalt ourselves and walk through life in arrogance and rebellion, God, teach us, tell us, shout it to us that you are sovereign Lord and you're ready to prove it. God, I pray that before you have to humble us like that, that we'll give our lives to you, surrender to you, yield to you, submit to you. For I pray in Jesus' name.